it's been too long. It it really has. I don't know why. It's like some of my favorite people to have on the show are the ones that I put off putting them back on the show because I want it to be I want it to be special. And then you know, and then it gets to the point where I'm like, you know what? I can't wait any longer. I got to have Jalkit on the show. I'm just curious what the um, what the uh, sandwich is going to be. You know, yeah, you should get well, Adam Lizagor. You should get Adam Lizagor on. And we'll I have should, a sandwich sandwich. Then it'll be a sandwich sandwich, right? Last episode was uh, uh, Ben Thompson. That was my right. emergency uh, Johnny Ive has retired episode. Uh, yes. And that was good. It was uh, good. Ben Thompson, always good. Ben Thompson, very insightful on stuff like that. Uh, but it was also, I was saving it up. See, you know me. You know me very well. That's, it, it's, you know, I think you've, you've got me down cold. Uh, <laughs> I, but I don't I don't celebrate stuff like episode 200 you know what I mean like when when episode mm-hmm. 200 rolls around I don't do anything special I don't even mention it last episode though was episode 256 and as a nerd 256 hits me harder than something like an episode 200 are you the same mm-hmm. way yeah except for I would have to um you know I, the excitement's over by 256 it's all 255 uh, it's all it's all the party is like 255 and 256 is the hangover see because the thing is <laughs> the thing is is you know as well as i do that if if there's intelligent life elsewhere in the universe maybe and, and if they're even vaguely uh hominid type life forms you know if they even look vaguely like us maybe they have eight fingers maybe they have 12 fingers maybe they only have six fingers but the the fact that we have a decimal mathematical system is clearly and unambiguously the fact that we have 10 figures. Right. And so these numbers like 100 and 200 are completely arbitrary based on the number of fingers we have. I'm not saying I don't notice. I notice when I'm publishing episode 200 or, you know, a couple weeks from now or months from now when I episode, when I do episode 300, I'll notice. But it doesn't hit me the way like 255 or 256 does because I realize that no matter where you are in the universe, even if you've got, you know, you're a species with eight fingers, maybe you're a species with 12, maybe you're a species that doesn't have hands. I don't know what the hell you are. (laughs) But if you've invented computers, Mm -hmm. you're going to know that 256 is a magic number. Who knows what representation you're going to put it in, but it's going to be a magic number because binary. Mm Mm-hmm is magic that is that's a good point good observation so we're gonna well but now you're 257 so (laughs) (laughs) i'm 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 gonna i'm gonna be a part of a beautiful sandwich though it's a (laughs) that's all i have oh man how's your summer going it's freaking hot you're you're in philly right uh so or have you been in Philly uh, through, I, through the been, heat wave? No. Well, we were in Florida earlier in the month, and it was actually less hot and humid mm-hmm. than it is right now. Yeah. Right now, they say, I'm looking at uh, the Dark Sky app, 91 feels like 99. But yesterday, uh, it was 6 o'clock at night, and it, it, it was 94 degrees, but it felt like, I guess that's the heat index, Mm-hmm. 106, which is insane. Like, plus 12 on the heat index is absolutely yeah. insane. Yeah, that's nuts. We uh, we just went, actually, for a quick weekend to get away up to Vermont, 
uh, we don't have any particular tie to Vermont. It's just, you know, as you know, you, you lived in Massachusetts for a while. Suddenly you're close when you yep. live in Massachusetts to yep. all these great northeastern states. And Vermont is one of them. Um, what's great about a place like Vermont is it's relatively unspoiled <laughs> compared to the rest of the country slash world. Um, yep. And so we went up to Vermont and it was freaking hot there as well. But it's the kind of place where you can just like walk over to the nearest river and sit down in a river. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you wouldn't want to do that in Philly. <laughs> One of the things I love about Vermont, and I don't know if it's statewide, I don't know if it's only the roads. I've been on the handful of times I've been there, but I have been there. One of the things I love is that when I've been there, and it might be statewide, I don't know, but they there's no billboard advertisements at all. It's it's illegal. It is like mm. against the law. They just preserve it. So you're driving on these roads and the only thing interrupting the natural woods and the, and the mountains is the road you're on. You know, like the actual macadam you're driving on is the only interruption. And there's uh, no advertisements for uh, Coca-Cola or movies or, or what whatever you have. And, and it's a truly a, a beautiful, beautiful state. It is, yeah. And you know, I didn't know that about Vermont, but I'm not surprised if that's true. Um, and the, but the place I had consciously noticed that is also true about before is Maine. Yeah. Which yeah. is also huge, and yep. it's also beautiful. Um, and one, one of the funny things I noticed is there's no billboards, but apparently the state just thinks you get too bored or something if you don't see something every once in a while. So occasionally there's like an advertisement for the state itself. Oh, yeah, I get you. Yeah, I the got state. You. They just I keep like, driving along, and it's like, hey, Maine, how about that? You know? <laughs> I like it. When you, there's also uh, uh, signs that we don't have in Pennsylvania, like a moose crossing. Right. You know, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. We don't have moose in Pennsylvania. No. Yeah. No, no. You got a problem if you got a moose in yeah. Pennsylvania. Yeah. We've got deer, but it, they just let you hit them. They don't even warn you when you when you're crossing. They're just like just just drive right through them. You know? Just put, get it over with. Yeah. Just get it over with. Take your car into the shop. Get the dents <laughs> taken out. Somebody will pick up the cars. Yeah. Oh my god. You know what? Uh, what do you want to talk about? You got anything on your mind? Well, I actually just. As luck would have it, I just kind of like maybe even kind of rushed out a blog post, so I hope I didn't screw anything up. But um, I wanted to publish something that was on my mind, and uh, you invited me on the show today, and I thought, well, I'm going to get this out because I want to talk to John about it. Um, And so it's going to be one of these things I think is going to be either really interesting or somebody will point out some reason I got it all wrong, um, or both. Um, But the key takeaway from this blog post I just published is um, a sort of a, a consequence that I I observed um, with the whole new app notarization thing on the Mac, right? You know about this, and it's the, the next level of all of these mounting, you know, restrictions slash, you know, security enhancements um, that Mac developers have been facing over the past 10 years plus. Um, and the notarization system is new last year, and it essentially is a process where you, before shipping an app, um, you send it to Apple, and they scan it for, I guess, they say known malware, but then they also sort of verify that it's using, um, it's not a very restrictive set of APIs, but like there's certain APIs and certain like library loading behaviors that you're not allowed to use. Um, right. Things that, things that they know are bad news. 
Yeah, mostly or things, and then or there's that some they things, think are bad yeah. news. If, they think are bad news. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, and some of them I think most people would agree are bad news, so that's good. And they're scanning for that. And then some of it's kind of middle of the road, and 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 then there's this kind of opt-in system where you just say, okay, I'm doing this thing. Like for instance, you can say, um, I want to be able to load libraries from uh, signed by entities that are not myself or Apple by default with this new. Mm-hmm. Um, notarization system it's called the hardened runtime goes with it and by default you're only allowed to load shared libraries by signed by the company that also signed the app right or by apple itself Mm. um so that's an example of something where you can opt out of it because apple realizes there are companies out there that load plugins from diverse developers for example um i you know for instance recently i've been working for another company on uh some plugins for um for apple's logic and right. you know those plugins will not work if if it can't load this way. Anyway, kind of going off on a tangent here, but um, the the key takeaway from this blog post is something I noticed while working on the notarization process, which is and and to to emphasize this, notarization yeah. is a new thing that is different than App Store. It, it has nothing to do with the App Store, really. You you know. The stuff that gets notarized can go right from the developer's website to your computer without ever going through the app store. It's a different form of verification, and and I think that's worth emphasizing. You know, it is worth emphasizing, especially because it shines the light on the one kind of peculiar implementation detail, which is that all of the notarization happens through app store servers. So um, you submit your binary using this tool called AL Tool. On the com- if you if you do it from the command line, uh, Apple has stuff to let you do it automatically through Xcode. But most like I think most companies of a certain size, and then most companies that just kind of have things automated in a certain way, myself included, um, you do the things you build and submit whatever from the command line. Um, anyway, I noticed that. So, you, so the, the rough outline is you build your app, you submit it to Apple in binary form. You don't have to give them source code or anything. They scan it, and then they basically keep like a dictionary of, you know, a lookup table of hashes from binaries that exist that have been, you know, in the world that have been notarized. And then at runtime, when the OS is about to launch your app, uh, I think just for the first time still, um, it goes and actually checks in with Apple and says, "Hey, this is the hash. What do you got?" And then it says, "Apple says yes or no. Like this is this is scanned or not." Uh, that's kind of the rough outline. Anyway, when I was going to notarize one of my apps, um, I got an error back that said the error wasn't like your app is messed up or anything like it wasn't like Apple servers are messed up. It was you have not signed the latest versions of the contracts at App Store Connect and. Um, as I said in this blog post, I wrote, I sort of just like flew right over. I mean, I didn't even think about it. This is kind of like that, um, the same criticism many people have for like all these new, you know, dialogues that say, do you want to allow this? Do you want to allow that? Um, you know, the classic, like we criticized windows for this and now Apple's doing it. Um, uh, whatever it is, this like, you know, you get used to, so used to approving things, you just do it almost automatically. And I think a lot of developers are like that with the app store contracts. Like we're not lawyers. We're not like, uh, we're not, we're also not prepared to like say, well, that's it. I guess this is my last day being an Apple app store developer. (laughs) Yeah, I'm out. Yeah, I'm out. Uh, you got me there. Uh, but what's interesting about this is if I'm understanding everything correctly, 
I literally had to go agree to App Store developer contracts in order to notarize my app to ship directly to customers. Right. In other words, you have to agree to App Store terms to distribute a non-App Store app if you're going to comply with this notarization, which in theory on the surface is a good idea, you know, at least the the spirit is good. There's no uh, malfeasance on Apple's part to encourage this. Right. But there are very reasonable reasons why develop some developers for certain apps will uh, do not want to agree to app store terms yeah uh, that's one aspect of it and then like the other aspect to me is just the granularity of how this has the potential to inter so even if you're just like me and you kind of blindly agree to the contracts every day whatever not every day but you know however yeah. often they they come out uh, this is still a situation now where it's like mm, you just tried to ship an app but uh-uh-uh, you haven't agreed to the latest contract. Um, and that's a substantial difference from, you know, people complained about developer ID when it came out, but with the developer ID, you essentially went through this process of getting a certificate that was then good for years of uninterrupted software distribution yeah. on the Mac. Right. Um, so I guess you could say, well, you had to agree to the terms to, you know, get a developer ID. Um, but this feels differently different to me because of the granularity of it and the fact that you could, um, at any time, you know, theoretically there's companies out there that might actually look at the new contract and say, no, um, I know a lot of companies have lawyers who they at least have review every iteration of the contract. Um, so you're looking at a situation now where, um, you know, you, you, you could face a situation where you're trying to ship an important bug fix. Well, and and it's very clear that we're if we're not there already, we're clearly heading towards a, a world where a non-notarized app is going to be a second-class citizen. Yes. Well, it's, I mean, this is... It's come I, think to we're, I think we're probably there already, right? It's I come mean, to a head in Catalina, in the right. macOS uh, Catalina public beta, because... Well, I mean, we are already there because right now, as it stands, if you are not developer ID signed, then by default, you know, the system just says, you can't open this. Sorry, it's not it's not trustworthy. And you have to kind of know that you can do this whole dance of right-clicking right. it and selecting right. open. Um, right, same- or selecting it. And, and, and the other way to get around it would be to select the icon in the finder. And then in the if you have the toolbar in your finder window, you can go up to the gear gear menu in the window and select open but there's mm. something you know it's 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 equivalent it's the single click way of getting around the the control click or right click way of uh you know selecting an icon and and hitting open because if you just double click the icon you're never going to get there right it just yep. it only gives you the option to quit yep that's right and um the behavior as of Catalina is it's intensified because I think previously it said uh, you know something like sorry I can't open this because it's from an unknown developer yeah. and now it says something like can't open this because it's dangerous and mm. we can't scan it for vulnerabilities or whatever you know it's something a little bit right. more uh, so it, the sort of the um, sort of the premise of my blog post is you have to start with the assumption that every reasonable developer who is shipping Mac software for, you know, 
for either for a living or because they want to have a broad reach, you have to start with the assumption that they acknowledge that they have to sign things with developer ID and that now we have to notarize our software. And so starting with that premise, you know, of course you can still ship software and people can right click it or whatever. Um, But it's a, it's an interesting new world starting in 1015. um, There's, there's a, there's an interesting barrier now that could potentially be significant if, I don't know, you know, some companies, like I said, they have to have lawyers review these contracts before they agree to them. And um, that's going to slow some some releases down. One thing you, I mentioned to you before we started recording, just when we were texting, setting this up, but uh, for years, we, meaning uh, Mac experts, Mac nerds, Mac aficionados, Mac developers, people who really, really care deeply about the Macintosh as a platform have been worried for years that Apple is going to force iOS-style restrictions on macOS, meaning, hey, the, they're going to issue an update. They're going to have a WWDC where they say everything outside the App Store is deprecated next year. You know, And they, they never say next year, but you know when they mean next year. They'll They'll be like in dick quotes, you know, next year uh, it's going to be App Store only. And everything you're going to run on your Mac has to go through the App Store. That's the thing that we've been worried about. We don't want – I don't want that. I I really don't. I I think that would be very bad for the platform. I don't think it would be the death of the platform, but I I really do think that part of what makes the Mac the Mac is that you can run arbitrary software. And and I've been worried about it just because it seems like something Apple might do. And, and, you know, you and I have a, a slew of friends who are all in the same racket, and we've all been vaguely worried about it. And uh, the truth is, like many things in life, it's like the simplistic thing you're worried about isn't the thing to worry about. It's, it's not working out like that. I don't think that's going to happen now because year after year, as we see the screws tighten on some of this security stuff – the Mac is evolving in very different ways. It, it's not like, I wouldn't call it like iOS at all, but it is, in broad terms though, it is definitely more and more under Apple's control. You know, like, and, and it's not in this, not in a simplistic way like the way that iOS is, where any kind of broad-based software you want to distribute has to go through the app store or you have to you know cheat like facebook and google did and and abuse your uh uh, beta certificate but to to play by the rules on ios you need to go through the app store it's very simple and then your app needs to comply with all the various app store rules the mac isn't like that at all it still isn't i don't think it ever will but Things like this notarization are it, 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 Apple is a it, it is a gatekeeper on this. Yeah, absolutely, and that's why it's so appropriate that the the technology on the Mac is called gatekeeper. Um, yeah. And when it came out, I think people read a lot into that, and it was like, wait a minute, they're not going to let certain software run. And, and you're right, everyone jumped to conclusions. Um, right. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's funny because I often have a take on these kinds of things that is simultaneously a little bit worried and, like, a little bit, I guess you could say, um, I kind of want to, st- you know, I'm kind of kind of conservative in that sense that I kind of want things to just stay as they are. 
But then I think I'm also pretty pragmatic about the security improvements. Like if I look at my Mac today and the world that we're living in and the things that crap people are out there doing, um, I, I frankly can't relate too well to people who are like, it should just be the way it used to be where you could download anything you want, you know, and everything has access to every file on your Mac. Um, more and more I'm like, geez, I'm kind of glad I have this locked down Mac, but, um, well, and I'm kind of glad, I'm really glad my my parents have it. I'm really glad my Mm -hmm. wife has it. I'm really glad my son has it, you know, like, and I, I, you know, it's, it sounds a little pretentious to say that, uh, I'm special because I I underst- I quote understand this stuff and so I want special privileges but I do because <laughs> I mm-hmm. kind of do understand this uh, but I really am and I feel like that's the line that Apple is walking is the line between what they do for the typical ninety eight percent of Mac users versus what they allow for the expert slash developers slash power users however you want to describe them two percent of mac users who this stuff is sort of getting in the way of yeah you know and 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 i do feel i'm worried with with 1015 catalina that they've sort of they're they're crossing the line and this is the version where they might start really inconveniencing us yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, I imagine that depending on what your particular niche interest is, there's been a, a release in the past three years or whatever, four years, maybe longer, where that was the line. You know, I think um, like scripters, I think, really had it tough in the past year. Um, I think because of that, um, you know, I mentioned that thing about only loading Apple or your own libraries. And like, yes. that basically, I think, in 1014 effectively just killed a bunch of um like I, I don't think you can i should know more about this off the top of my head probably because of my involvement with scripting utilities but um <laughs> you should <laughs> i should but I, I you know i've kind of i kind of just ha- you know i'm not completely up, up over my head in that um these days um but i think effectively you can't load like third-party osacs anymore from you know like if you yeah. use apple's um script runner yeah. You can't you can't do that, and that's like whole workflows that just got broken. Um, right. And yeah, you're right though. There's there's a new thing every year, um, and I think this is going to be another one of those years where it's like, oh well, there's a whole realm of productivity things that you can't do anymore. Um, but you know, getting back real quickly, what you were saying, like you know, are we being maybe like a little bit presumptuous about thinking that we know how to be safe when others don't? Uh, I've really, I've really kind of feel myself gradually shifting over the years where every time Apple comes out with another one of these rounds of kind of security improvements, I have to say I understand less and less intrinsically why they did it. And then I have to, mm. and I start looking into it. And I'm like, oh, and they explain why they did it. Yeah. And I'm like, ah, oh, geez, I would have, I have to be honest, I would have never thought about that, right. you know? And so it's like, it may be kind of edge cases, but I think they're doing these things because they, spot legitimate vulnerabilities and um i guess i feel less and less competent myself to manage all the different aspects of my computer's security yeah that's very true all right let me take a break and thank our first sponsor and it is our one of my best friends on the internet squarespace oh i love squarespace look you need a website 
maybe your friend needs a website maybe there's a company a local restaurant a local local business around the corner needs a new website they come to you because you're you're the neighborhood nerd they know you know what you're doing don't don't build them a website from scratch and then you're on the hook for all the updates and when things need to change and then they're calling you and calling you and call send them to squarespace or or get them started on squarespace yourself build it hand over the keys to them because squarespace is so easy to keep going and it's so easy to get started it is so easy it is a cms so you can add blog posts or podcast episodes or whatever you want on a periodic basis. Or if you just need to add new pages, just new sections of the website, you can do that. All of it very easy, but it's also a design tool. All of the design stuff, all of the templates, all of the tweaking of the design, putting a logo at the top, making sure everything is responsive so it looks great on a giant display, looks great on an iPad, looks great on a phone. All of it is built right into Squarespace. Super WYSIWYG. WYSIWYG, that's a term that really has sort of fallen out of favor. We don't really think about it anymore. What you see is what you get. But Squarespace is like the epitome of WYSIWYG because when you're, you're the owner of the website or you're just a rando visitor to the website, you're looking at the same thing, but when you're the administrator, you have edit buttons where you can change things, move things around, but you do it all directly right on the website it is so great such a great place you can do everything from registering domain names to updating the site to designing the site all on squarespace here's what you do to get started go to squarespace.com and remember this code talk show no the not the talk show just talk show t-a-l-k-s-h-o-w and when you check out you'll save 10 percent off and that counts including up to a year. You can just sign up for a year in advance. That's like getting two months free. It's amazing. Go to squarespace.com. Remember that code, talk show. Go to squarespace.com slash talk show, and you can get started. But just remember that code, talk show, when you pay. So one of the things I've been writing about lately, and I think it ties into this, and, and it's this term, I'm, I'm, it's like my obsession for the summer is non-consensual technology. And mm -hmm. it started with... Oh, the Zoom thing, right? That wasn't this ridiculous. This is I, I'd never heard of Zoom before. And this is one of those things where me working at home, uh, mm -hmm. you know, without any colleagues. And every time I do talk to somebody, it's either FaceTime or it, when I do a podcast, it's Skype. Zoom is apparently a very popular uh, uh, sort of uh, virtual meeting software type thing. Mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, it's got a webcam. You can look at a you know. And and you can have a virtual meeting. You can have eight people around the world, you know, and yeah, there you go. You're all looking at each other in this thing and you can talk to each other and, and share notes and whatever the hell else you do in a meeting. <laughs> you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. <laughs> right. But the way that Zoom had set this up is to me absolutely criminal i i and i'm i i mean this literally i i don't think that it is literally against any particular like u.s federal law but it ought to be it ought to be against the law and in in terms of uh, computer ethics it is absolutely criminal is that they set their software up 
such that when you installed the software, they'd ask for, you know, hey, can we have administrator privileges or whatever? And you, you say, okay, because this is what I need to do to install this. And they installed a localhost web server that was set to launch whenever you logged in. And it was outside the app bundle and the the thing that whatever whatever mechanism i don't know what mechanism they were using to make sure it launched whenever you logged in but whatever it was it was all outside the app bundle so even if you deleted the zoom app you're like i don't like this or i only installed it once because somebody told me i needed to have a meeting i don't really care for it i'm going to delete it you delete the app you hit uh empty trash it's gone you could even restart your 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 mac unbeknownst to you innocent user of zoom even just one time this invisible web server is still running on your mac which is insane absolutely insane especially if you deleted the app and if you're ever on a web page and the web page sends your computer on any web browser a url like addressed with their custom zoom url scheme it would go to the localhost running invisible web server that you didn't even know was there. And it would download and reinstall the, the Zoom <laughs> client that you purposefully deleted and then mm -hmm. open it up. Which all of what I just described is exactly what they designed it to do. None of that is out of spec. None of that is a bug. None of that is, is, is a, a, in error and guess what turns out they did have at least one bug that would allow somebody to completely denial of service your computer by sending an unending stream of requests for the zoom thing so you could load a web page just by going to a web page and if the web page decided, you know, to to attack your computer, it would just send an unending number of requests for this and it would completely lock up your computer, which it was clearly a bug. And then there was some kind of way where they could turn the webcam on, which, of course, is terrifying and is everybody's worst nightmare, um, you know, with webcams <laughs> yeah. and, and ties into the whole Joanna Stern piece from a couple of weeks ago about whether you should put a piece of tape over your webcam or not. There was another bug where, where they could turn on your webcam without you knowing or requesting it or allowing it, which is insane. Absolutely right. insane. But the whole thing that, that uh, the starting point of them doing something that you never permitted, never would have permitted if they had asked for it is, is to me, it gets to the bottom of what's wrong with the entire industry. And, and it's kind of, it, it it makes me feel like a gray beard, you know, it's like, I'm only 46. I'm not that old, but I really feel like, oh my God, when, when I got started really becoming a serious computer enthusiast and thought, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to get into this industry. Nobody would have ever done anything so contrary to the user's uh, wishes or best interests. Well, not nobody, maybe, but nobody yeah. who was <laughs> nobody who was um, selling a legitimate was, product. Right, 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 right. This kind of gets back to the such a perfect segue from the whole question of like, can we look out after ourselves right. or not? Right, right. like this Zoom, is a great Zoom, example. Zoom is 
again, I'm very contrary to them. I, I could not be more critical of them, but their <laughs> right. fundamental product is a real product that people yeah. use and seem to like. It's a product like. that people use and they love it. And I didn't know right. this either. I had never heard of the company and I was discussing it with some folks kind of like, well, there's this little, you know, nobody heard of it app that has this bug (laughs) and everyone was like everyone was like what do you mean nobody's heard of it like everybody i want to tell a conference with uses this thing and it's great totally me that is totally me (laughs) so i had the same experience but this is a perfect example who the heck thought that you download a teleconferencing app from a reputable quote-unquote seemingly presumably i should say reputable reputable software company and it would install a secret web server that makes you vulnerable to browser attacks. Right. And um, that's probably a perfect case in point for why we need – like, why is Apple doing all this security junk? Well, it's people doing stuff like this. And I think your sort of broader point there, though, is correct that there seems to be uh, – you know, and this extends way beyond the Mac. This is um, – probably extends to like you know judging the ethics of companies like uber and you know people who um have done things where you you take a step back and you say well why the heck would anybody do that that's a violation of somebody's privacy or their you know their their rights whatever um and it just seems like we're in one of these eras right now where it's very um i i think people are making a lot of excuses for doing things in the name of profit or yep. or um, what they think is profitable. Yeah, or profit right? or even in, if it yeah. isn't profitable, but they think it is, right? Yeah, and in this case, I mean, they had a they said, you know, they had a pretty good case for making this for defending this as being driven by user experience, right? They said uh, I think if I remember it correctly with the Zoom thing, it was like, well, it saves users a click so they can just automatically get connected and when that works, customers are delighted because it saved them a click and if you can save customers Mm. a click without making them suddenly exposed to new vulnerabilities then that's that is laudable and that's something you should be doing so it wasn't like in this case they were saying hey if we install this secret web server we can make a dollar extra for every customer they were saying well we can make a competitive advantage with this it, it sort of ties into mars edit in a way because if if i've read the story correctly when they came up with this scheme to install the invisible web server behind the scenes so that you you could click a button in a web page to say i want to talk to i want to talk to daniel over zoom and it would download the client and install it and open it and then all of a sudden you know me and you were web chatting or whatever you want to call it it it's yep. if i'm reading it correctly it started when Safari was updated so that bookmarklets require user interaction. Yep. And I forget the actual vulnerability, but there was a real vulnerability that that was in response to. Where, in other words, um, uh, I, I, what does MarsEdit use a MarsEdit colon URL scheme? Is that what it, it is? It, it does have that, yeah. yeah. So lots of apps have this sort of thing where, where, so for example, Daniel's app, Mars Edit, has a URL scheme and it starts instead of HTTP colon 
URL, you know, the rest of the URL yep. goes here. It's Mars edit colon. And then there's, you know, like a command and then parameters so that you could open a new blog post with this as the title and this text as the body. And, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of things you can do with it and all sorts of apps, uh, uh, more apps than we could name have schemes like this so that you can click a link in you can make links in in email or text or wherever and you can create a new to do in things or uh, other apps and all sorts of neat things you can do but the problem was is that they were being abused and there were ways that 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 certain websites were abusing this system and so apple changed safari so that Whenever you open any URL whose the resolution of the URL is going to result in another app opening, it would ask for confirmation in the Safari window. And you have to click a button. Uh, one button. Yep. Yeah, one <laughs> <Which> button. <laughs> isn't, isn't that bad. But on the other hand, if you're used to clicking no buttons, it it does seem you know yeah. like oh this is annoying. But it it there there's sort of no middle ground where they they can't close the security hole that was opened by the fact that that it would automatically open these other apps without this. And so in in response to this is why they started this. But uh, that's really the wrong way to go. <laughs> Really, yeah, really, I mean that's really that's the, the most that's the most damning thing I think about the Zoom incident was that when people broke it down, they basically discovered that you know um, they're working around something that's specifically designed to get user consent, and so this gets right. back to what you were saying. Right. What was it? What did you call it? The non-consensual technology. Non-consensual which I love. technology. I really love, and, yeah. and it applies to so many things that we've you know, yeah. so many of the last couple of years of of topics for podcasts and stuff. It, it, it's so perfect. Non-consensual yeah. technology. Nobody, maybe nobody said. Nobody said, you know what? I would like to have to make an extra click every time I start a Zoom call. Nobody said that. Nobody wants that. Everybody would like it if if everybody played fair and nobody did anything dishonest. Everybody would like it if if you didn't have to make the extra click to make your Zoom call. But yep, I think what. It's sort of like saying, wouldn't it be great if you could leave the doors of your house unlocked all the time? And then even if you come home with two hands full of groceries, you can just put your elbow on the doorknob and, and come in the house. Wouldn't that be great? It would be great, but you can't leave your doors unlocked all the time because who knows who's going to come and, and jigger the door, right? You know, mm-hmm. So you've got to lock the door, and then once the door's locked, you have to uh, click the extra button to make a Zoom call. And they decided... I think they, wait, what, they decided, well, wouldn't it be, well, how about once you let us in your house, we'll unlock one of your windows without telling you. That's right, right. It'll right? be convenient. Trust us. Um, and, then, we'll... and then if you ever need to make a Zoom call, we'll crawl in the window <laughs> and open the door for you. Creepy. It is not. I don't think that's that much of a stretch as an analogy that they came in and unlocked, you know, window 80. Right. You know. they, they, they put some toilet paper in the door lock. <laughs> Thing, just in case they needed to get in later. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but 
But, you know, I think what you're getting at also points to um, a problem with Apple's approach to some of these security things is that I don't think Apple, either they don't think through extensively enough what the usability implications are going to be, or they don't consider them as important, right? So um, this whole thing with the, you know, you click on a, uh, a link, custom link and now it prompts you, the consent is important, but I think most users agree that consent doesn't need to be, in a lot of situations in life, consent doesn't have to be granted explicitly every single time, right? Right. right. And so you click the link once and it says, are you sure you want to open this Zoom thing? Um, and then maybe if Apple had thought it through a little bit more, maybe they'd realize how annoying this was going to be, not just for Zoom, but for all this other software that uses this kind of solution, for my bookmarklet, for example. Um, and then maybe they are motivated then to engineer a solution that establishes a compromise where it's like, you know what? I pretty much know I trust whatever Mars edit URLs are right. not dangerous to me. Right. Um, or they say, you know what? Zoom URLs, they seem like they could be dangerous. So why don't you just right. only allow those to be opened from right. the zoom.com or whatever? Um, and I say this because you and I, and you know this, I mean, I don't want to go too far into the weeds here, but you and I have gone. Uh, it, it, it is absolutely my privilege that I know you and you're, you're my friend, but Mars Edit happens to be one of the very small handful of apps that I most rely on literally professionally. I mean, tens of thousands, the overwhelming vast majority of posts to Daring Fireball over the last, the entire history of the site, frankly, go through Mars Edit. Uh, Mars Edit is, uh, I forget, how long, when did you take over Mars Edit? Uh, 2006? 2007. Yeah, so it's been 12 years, believe it or not. Uh, but it, it is, uh, 12 years, Jesus. It, it is a, uh, blog editing app that speaks to any app that, that uses any of the various open blog editing APIs. Uh, WordPress would be by far and away the most prevalent. Uh, I still use movable type, but movable type uses, has a, a you know, remote API that Mars Edit can speak to. That's what I use it through. But uh, almost everything I post to Daring Fireball goes through Mars Edit. And the only things that don't typically are like, sometimes I'll make typo corrections from my phone going through the web interface. But it, it, it's truly an essential part of my workflow. I don't know what I would do without it. Uh, but I also have, and have had for years, a bookmarklet that I use in Safari. And so if I'm reading a web page, you know, it could be from Bloomberg, could be New York Times, doesn't matter what web website it is, I can click a button in Safari, one button, and then it jumps me into into Mars Edit. It pre-fills the title with the title of the page that I was reading. I can tweak it if I want. It pre-fills the URL that I'm linking to. And if I have a text selection in my browser window, it prefills it as a block quote in, in the window. It's a really, really nice, convenient way to start uh, the process of linking to a website. And at some point about two years ago, two, three years ago, when Apple changed this, yeah. where you had to click an extra button, it would be like, are you sure you want, do you want to open this in Mars Edit? 
I mean, I do this a lot, especially when I'm in the flow. You know what I mean? Like on a good day when I'm really, I, you know, maybe I've got a couple of things queued up to start the day and then I find a couple of more links during the day and I might have like seven or eight links. The extra click really annoyed me. <laughs> and so you yeah. and I work this out. And, and, and uh, I actually have a custom version of the app. I have right. a post to Mars edit app uh, that... Uh, does it exactly the way I want to, but that it's super technical. I mean, most people can never do that. Right. I mean, like I've right. got like a weird, uh, it, a combination of me being half nerdy and especially being pals with you to get, to get it set up right. just right. I've got this custom app in on my site that the app literally doesn't do anything except offer Safari this extension which lets me get around the confirmation because I've okayed it once. Whereas, and I think you're exactly right. Like I kind it, the whole thing would have been unnecessary if I could just tell Safari, Hey, these Mars edit colon URLs, I'm okay with them. Do whatever yep. they say. Or, or, or maybe being able to um, permit on a bookmarklet by bookmarklet basis, right? right so you right, make right, right. a bookmarklet. You say, you know, what? I wrote this. Just trust me. Just right. this is mine. Um, right, right. Yeah, there's lots of ways they could have made it easier. Um, and that's it's funny. I don't. I didn't. I have to admit, I didn't look into the Zoom thing that carefully. But it makes me wonder why didn't why weren't they able? To, they have a native app running. I, I assume. Yeah. Whatever. Well, I think I think the I think where they really crossed the line was where where they decided that they would like to be able to reinstall themselves after being deleted. And right. at, that, at that point, you're, you're in the dark world. You know what I mean? Like, that's wrong. You know what I mean? Whereas I feel like if they were like, as long as our app is still there, there were a couple of ways that they could have gotten around this and made this more convenient. I think the thing, uh, the, the, you know, somewhere at some point they had a meeting where somebody wrote on a whiteboard reinstall after deleting the app, and that's where they crossed the line. Right. You have to admit, though, it's pretty convenient when they sneak back into your house and make you coffee the next morning. <laughs> <laughs> I, you, I, I do, I do, I, I mean, I'm a very offended by what they did, but I kind of have to salute their uh, hootspot. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> like leaving behind a web server it, that's always running on port 80 that is sort of insane <laughs> i have yeah. to admit like that's i i, 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 <laughs> I, I admiration them, i condemn them for the morality of it or yeah the ethics of it whatever you want to call it but i kind of salute them for the balls <laughs> you know what I mean? like, that was yeah but seriously. no that's uh it's one of these things where it's like oh um, don't ever want like if somebody asked me now if I wanted to do a Zoom conference call like oh, I'm glad I, I'm not in a position where people yeah, ask me that I, kind of thing. I would actually say no, you know. It's, yeah, it's uh, I I don't trust it. Uh, that makes me think of Dropbox, but let's hold that thought. I'm gonna bring up this Dropbox stuff after I tell you about uh, our next sponsor, and it's another one of my good friends, longtime sponsor of the show, Fracture. Look, we all take hundreds, probably thousands. I don't know what the average is, but I, I, I probably average well over a thousand iPhone camera shots a year. Uh, I've already taken hundreds of shots this summer from being on vacation. I love using my iPhone as a camera. 
It is absolutely every year they get better and better. But you know what? It's it's not great only ever looking at your photos on a little five inch iPhone display. Even if you look at them on your iPad, nice and big, it's still not as great as actually printing the photos you really love. The ones that are true keepers, the ones where you capture your friends, your kids, your spouse, your parents, whoever you love, and, and they really look great. Or maybe it's not even people. Maybe it's just a sunset or something like that, but just a great moment. Print it out. And the best way to get your very favorite pictures printed out is on Fracture. Fracture, when you go there, you upload your pictures. They print them. They don't put them on paper and then like tape them to a piece of glass. They literally print the photos right on glass. I don't know how they do it. it black magic. I don't know. But it really looks like they're printed right on the surface of the glass and they go edge to edge. There is no corner. There's no frame. It, it's amazing. And when they ship them to you, they come with everything you could possibly need to hang them on the wall, to prop them up on a mantle or on your desk if it's smaller. Everything you need is all right there in the case. And they do it all right in Gainesville, Florida, with U.S. sourced materials. It is absolutely phenomenal print quality, absolutely amazing when you look at them on your wall or on your desk. They're truly the best way I know of to get your photos printed. And they make amazing gifts. They are the best gifts I have ever given to people in my family ever. I just use them over and over and over and over again for gifts because that's one of the great things. I'm, I'm a terrible gift giver because every once in a while I'll think of a good gift for somebody and then you give them the gift. And then what do you do next? What do you do next year if it's their birthday or it's Christmas or whatever? Fracture, you can just keep giving it to them over and over and over again. It never gets old. Because you never run out of new photos. It's absolutely phenomenal gift. I love their product. We have them all over our house. Here's what you do to find out more. Go to FractureMe.com. Or no, just Fracture.me. That's actually their domain name. Fracture.me. And uh, just remember the code TALKSHOW. Uh, and when they ask you, where did you find out about Fracture? Just remember to tell them you found out about it on this podcast. I love Fracture. Go check them out. Absolutely a phenomenal product. They're another example of a company that's Gruber-proof. They've Gruber-proofed yeah. their domain names. You can go to either one. <laughs> FractureMe.com, Fracture.me. doesn't matter. You know my absolute favorite Gruber-proof I can guess it. I, I bet I can guess it. All right. What, what was it? Blackblaze.com. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so back... Wait, what's Black, the real company? Backblaze. 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 <laughs> longtime sponsor. Not a sponsor of this episode, so this is totally unsolicited. Great online backup. But <laughs> I, I said their domain was Blackblaze. Blackblaze. <laughs> and they went and and rather than like ask for a refund, you know, like, hey, yeah. you screwed up our domain name, you dumb shit. You know, and I would have, I would have had no excuse. I would have said, here's your money back. Take your money back, please. You know, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed. Instead, they went and registered the domain, <laughs> blackblazed. It still com. works. I just did it. It still works. It still works. For life, they're going to have blackblaze.com. Uh, thanks to John Gruber. 
It's one of my favorite stories of all time. <laughs> I screw up their domain. They register an additional domain name they don't need, and they're like, oh, no, don't worry about it. We thought it was funny. I, I'm like, you guys are the best. Yeah, that's a good sponsor. Uh, Dropbox. Oh, my God. How about these clowns? Yeah, right. We were talking about um, consent, right? Oh, my God. Here's another one where, where for years, I forget how long Dropbox has been around, but it's at least 20, 2009, 2010. I know that it's Steve Jobs was still around because there's the famous mm-hmm. story where Steve Jobs was talking to one of their founders, and there was, I guess, some sort of, you know, just putting feelers out about whether they would be open to being acquired and and jobs's line was hey you're not an app you're a feature you know and, and <laughs> yeah. that was his way of sort of trying to put them in their place whatever um but but that at least puts the timeline at 2010 or 2009 or so i mean it's at least 10 years of dropbox yep and uh, within the last week or two they've issued an update and a couple of things number one their software their app on the mac updates itself on its own schedule without you know you you grant it permission when you first install it and then it's there running in the background and it updates itself and they they've updated it to a version that launches an app in your dock which a lot of i I've got enough stuff in my dock where one more thing doesn't really annoy me, but I'm totally, totally, 100% attuned to the dock perfectionists who don't want anything in their dock that they don't want. And I totally understand how an awful lot of third-party utility Mac software specifically has even however minimal their preferences are they have a preference for show dock icon you know that some people really don't want stuff in the dock even if it's running all the time they really don't want it there unless it's like an app that they actually look at right if it's not an app with windows that you look at they don't want it in their dock i totally get that Uh, you know i don't want i generally don't want extra things in my dock but now Dropbox has this icon in the dock, and you click it, and it's it's ugly. <laughs> what what you do see <laughs> when you click it is ugly, and nobody nobody who I know wants anything other than a folder that syncs, and mm-hmm. you know with sharing. That's what Dropbox is, and and the the whole Steve Jobs, hey, you're a feature, not a an app or whatever it's like yeah but you're a feature i would pay for i i a folder that syncs with sharing i would pay for that i would happily pay for that as long as it's super robust and super reliable which dropbox syncing wise has always been that was always the miracle of dropbox right that that you know in an era when there were Multiple. I've always been multiple options of ways to try to have a shared folder between computers. Dropbox was like the first one who just said, just install this thing, give it permissions, and mm-hmm. let it go. And every computer you have this on will have the exact same shit in the exact same <laughs> folder. 
And that was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And it didn't matter, like, if you, like, were temporarily offline, you're out in the middle of, uh, you know, uh, a prairie, you're you're uh, 500 miles away from the nearest cell tower, but you open your laptop and you do a little work and you hit Command S and you save a file and you close your laptop. And at some point, your laptop reconnects to the internet and it syncs and everything and you know then you go back home and you open up your desktop iMac and there it is there's the file that you had saved in the middle of Kansas 500 miles from the nearest cell tower and it's all there right it it, it really has been sync wise one of the great technology triumphs of the world and it sounds like something that should not be celebrated but anybody who's ever worked on anything that syncs, period, realizes what a triumph Dropbox has always been from the day one, you know, mm-hmm. technology-wise. Yeah, it's reminding me of this sort of famous Quora question. You remember this? Like, it was like this this answer to a Quora question kind of got some traction. I'm looking at it right now because I, I was reminded of it, and it's from 2011. Um, but it's an answer to a question, is, which is basically like, why is Dropbox successful? Like, why, <laughs> why, why, why is it successful? And there's so many other tools. And right. this great, this great response by Michael Wolf. And you probably, if you don't remember it already off the top of your head, you probably remember, remember it when I read it. But he says, like, basically, um, he says, well, let's take a step back and think about the sync problem and what the ideal solution for it would do. One, there would be a folder. Two, you'd put your stuff in it. Three, it would sync. And then he says, they built that. <laughs> and he says, why didn't anyone else build that? I have no idea. But that's the nut of what you're saying is the simplicity is what we've come, you know, people who use Dropbox, I don't use Dropbox regularly anymore. I think I kind of got the whiff of something up um, a few years ago. And so I, I, I uninstalled the um, the Dropbox system level integration yeah. a few years ago when they had I don't remember it was something they did something kind of kind of silly a few years ago no they, they started I, I know exactly I, I guarantee you I know when you did it it was yeah. when they started asking for permission that would allow them it, it, they didn't tell you this but they were asking for permission so that what they could do is install a kernel extension right which is fucked up right mm-hmm. I mean that is seriously you know it Two, three, four years ago, kernel extensions were already like, hey, we're, we, we don't live in the 90s anymore. You don't just – apps don't get to install right. shit that runs on <laughs> right. kernel not for, a, not for a you know, file sync utility. Not for something that we know could work without it, right? That was right. the thing yeah. is we know that everything I want out of Dropbox I know can run without it because I never let you do it before. And you're doing – what I want you to do, which is give me a folder and it syncs and yep. it's perfect. Uh, why in the world should I give you kernel access? So I, you were probably smart. I, I've I still run it, but now at this point, I, I'm it's like on my summer list of to dos. Mm-hmm. I've got to get out of it because the it, I I think it's coincidental timing because I don't think I think that you know they're they're their aspirations are high enough that it's not tied to the fact that um, 1015 Catalina is going to add shared folders to iCloud 
file sharing or file syncing, whatever. Right. But the having a shared folder is the last thing keeping me on Dropbox. And and specifically, I only share it with one person, the, the only one that really matters to me. I guess I have one with my wife, and we update it every once in a while. But for the most part with my wife, we, we just send stuff by iMessage. But the big one for me is for this show where mm-hmm. I finish the show. I'm going to send you a link and you'll upload your end of the audio. I'm going to upload upload my end of the audio. And then uh, Caleb Sexton, who edits the show, is also a member of the same shared folder. He'll get both files and then he'll be able to edit them. And when he's done editing, he will put the final version of the show in the same folder and then I'll pull it down. So I have one shared folder that I really care about with Caleb. I share it with everybody who's on my show. Um, once I can get rid of it, but I could, I could do that without running Dropbox locally. Like one of the things um, that's most appealing to me about unappeal, uh, uninstalling Dropbox is that I could use uh, like transit from panic and just give transit my Dropbox credentials and just treat it the way I treat most remote locations and do it through instead of through the finder and make it seem like it's a local folder that's on my file system. I don't really need that. I just need the shared folder uh, with collaborators. I could do that through an app and not have it seem like it's part of my file system. Right. That's funny. Um, I know that I, I know I used to run Dropbox because I used to since you mentioned that shared folder, it's also evidence that I have in fact been on the show before because I just went to dropbox.com and I'm in that um, shared folder uh, for the talk show. And I used to get these great notifications that would let me know in advance who I could expect to see, to hear on the show uh, because Mac OS would say, hey, so so and so just uploaded some files to this shared Dropbox folder. Um, so I guess I lost that feature when I uninstalled Dropbox, (laughs) but (laughs) maybe that's a reason enough to get back into the uh, Dropbox culture here. But yeah, that's, um, that's a mess. It's, it's a horrible thing for a company like Dropbox, which I think you would agree. Dropbox had a lot of sort of, it's more than just brand equity. They had sort of like, um, it, because of their simplicity and the fact that it just worked, they sort of had like an engineering level nerd equity. Yes, I know exactly what you mean, right? And yeah, it's like you kind of trust some companies, not just from a branding point of view, but from a like they know how to do this right point right. of view. Well, and and that people who knew their shit were like, yeah, oh, yeah, I use Dropbox. Yeah, you know what I mean. You know, it's like back in the day when I was doing graphic design, it's like, you know. Uh, uh, Illustrator and Freehand were arch rivals, and people who knew their shit would have. Everybody had a strong preference as to which was your favorite vector illustration tool, but everybody who knew anything would acknowledge that both of them were completely credible tools. They just did it in different ways, right? You know, it's uh, you know, there's just a whole list of apps in various. You know, you name the field Mm -hmm. and people who know their shit will be like, hey, I use blank, but I know that X, Y and Z are also good. They're just not the ones I use. But that's my short list. You know, X, Y, Z and W. They're they're the ones that I think are the ones you should look at. And 
Dropbox was absolutely a number one on that list of, hey, if you want a folder that syncs, you should install Dropbox. And it's just a shame. And I don't, it's like I, I get that they're, executive staff right now is in a tough spot because they raised a gazillion dollars in venture capital with the idea that they would eventually be valued at 10 gazillion dollars and to get from here to there they have to try to do something else you know that that just selling a a utility that lets a folder sync for five dollars a month or whatever <laughs> yeah. isn't going to get them there but it it could in theory be a good business right it just wouldn't be a a you know you're up there with microsoft and facebook and apple and google as one of the giant titans of the stock market type business but that's right. but they raised money thinking that that's what they would do you know and I get it that now they're painted in a corner because they've raised all this money on the idea that they're going to be the next Microsoft Office 365. And so they've got to sell, you know, they're turning the client software into this thing that does everything from document sharing to uh, video conferencing to whatever the fuck else it does. Uh, I, I, I get that they're painted in a corner because they did it, but nobody forced them to paint themselves in a corner, you know, and, and it could have been a very nice business. You know, it could have just been, I don't know, you know, how many people yeah. it would support. I don't know how big the company would be, but in theory with the technology they had and the sync algorithm they had, which clearly, it, it truly, it sounds like something that everybody should have and that and that it should be like bubble sort you know what i mean like here's one of these algorithms that everybody knows and and you know it it works with this performance and everybody you know can use this algorithm to sync between things the truth is sync is incredibly hard it's incredibly hard it's incredibly prone to bugs it, it and and from day one, Dropbox Sync was fast and reliable, and and that's all you could ever ask for. It was rare at the time. They should have been able to build some sort of business around it, even if it was a million-dollar business instead of a billion-dollar business. Mm-hmm. But instead, because they're going for a billion-dollar business, now we've got shit. We've got a big, big <laughs> pile of dog shit right at everybody's front door who runs runs Dropbox. So interesting, the valuation. So as soon as you started talking about the size of the company and their ambitions, I punched it into Yahoo stocks thing, you know, and yeah. Dropbox as of today is a market cap $10 billion company, which is incredible, a huge number, unless you compare it to like all these other companies. Right. Um, so for instance, it's like a half of a lift or one oh third, one third of a Twitter. Um which I mean, Twitter seems small. Its valuation seems small. Twenty-eight point eight billion right now. Uh, it seems small uh, compared to its mind share, right? Right, right. I actually but, think Twitter is undervalued, mm-hmm. in my opinion, just because they're they're they're. I don't want to go off too much on a tangent on this, but they're still so much in the shadow of Facebook, and therefore still compared on Facebook's terms. And Facebook is the one who defined monthly active users as this like that's the benchmark yeah and it's such the wrong yardstick for twitter 
right? It's so it, it is so inappropriate for Twitter, but it is in every single way. It's it, it defines every single bad idea Twitter comes up with for yep. the last six seven years because they know they're being measured against Facebook's definition of of terms. And I think Facebook. I think Facebook. Uh, I hate them. I've never signed up for Facebook. I think they're uh, genuinely a, 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 a bad effect on humanity overall, planet wise. But I do think that they are very. I think they're you know from Zuckerberg down, they're run by very smart people, and I think that they they not only set up that as their yardstick to because it would make them look good i think they very deliberately chose it because they knew it would make their competitors look bad that mm-hmm. no one would be able to you know once they they took the mental real estate that they did in people's lives as this is where regular people share photos and anecdotes about their lives they knew that nobody else would be able to occupy that and no one would be able to compare with them on monthly active users. And they, they sort of got this entrenched in the minds of investors as monthly active users equals, uh, you know, a, that, a good measuring yeah. stick. I, 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 you know, it's part of the evil of Facebook is that they, they not only do bad things, but they actually entrenched a bad measuring stick as, as the, 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 measuring for other social networks hmm. yeah 20 20 times twitter is 20 times smaller market cap than facebook but you, such such a larger mind share um, not so much larger yeah. and and you know i don't watch a lot of cable news you know i i you know i mean i i don't care what your per- political persuasion is whether you're conservative or liberal or in between or whatever cable news will rot your brain no matter which network you watch it's it's not good now but when i do watch because you know there's some breaking news i guess this week i'll probably watch because robert Mueller is gonna you know testify before congress so i'll be watching some cable news this week but whenever i do you can't go more than six or seven minutes before you see something about it a tweet yeah whether it's right it's from the and it's not just the president, you know, no. it's, it's people from Congress. It's, you know, AOC, you know, she's absolutely amazing on Twitter. Mm-hmm. She's, you know, she's as much a master of Twitter as the president is. And it's a fantastic way to control her message. It, it's, but the, the, the degree to which Twitter has become the platform for people like that, you know, who are the absolute, you know, truly the leaders of our country to to communicate with us. It's truly phenomenal. And it's completely, completely non-valued in Twitter's uh, right. valuation. Absolutely. And which is, to me, ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, it's, fa- it's fascinating. So anyway, yeah, I don't want to, like you said, let's not get on a, I'll, I'll sit here and look at stock prices all day and um, make analyses of what's valued right and wrong. But uh, I just think that's it's just fascinating. And Dropbox, yeah. clearly a huge company, um, but they, it, it is a transition. Getting back to the sort of topic at hand, like uh, Dropbox is a great example of one of these companies that has kind of gone from, like I said, that kind of nerd credibility to what's what's left nobody you turn to on any n- podcast they're all talking about nerd warnings right yeah, yeah right it's gone from like nerd like uh 
hey, you should install Dropbox. It's awesome to, hey, do you have Dropbox installed? You should maybe think yeah, about you, uninstalling yeah, it. Yeah. Right. Uh, which is it's sad, very sad, because the, the actual technology that made us fall in love with it is still there. That's <laughs> yeah. that's the tragedy. And, and it, it, I, I, again, there's far worse tragedies in the world. But right. to me, uh, having great technology just get obfuscated with piles and piles of crap in front of it is is sort of heartbreaking. Yep, sure is. Looks like it's going to thunderstorm here. How's the weather up there? I got my windows closed, so I don't have the, uh, and I have my AC off, so I'm living in a little like sealed vacuum chamber here. Yeah. Um, but looking out my window, I think we're, I don't think we have it coming real soon, but I think there's something on the forecast. Yeah. Are you, are you an ocean guy? I know uh, I've been listening to the uh, the ATP, and uh, yeah. you know, our friend Marco Arment is <laughs> right. learning to swim this summer. Uh, and uh, our our other friend John Syracuse, big big uh, big fan of going to the beach, long yeah. time, you know, famously. I love, uh, yeah, everybody's waiting for him to drop a camera in the ocean, right? Because he's <laughs> yeah. you know that's that's like the the annual tradition. He wades into the ocean with a handheld uh, camera, takes pictures of his kids and his wife and whoever else he's at the shore with. Still hasn't lost one, but uh, our friend Marco is learning to swim gonna go deeper in the ocean are you are you an ocean guy i'm i grew up in santa cruz california so um which is funny because that's not an automatic qualifier for being an ocean guy um by stark contrast to what i'm about to say i have never actually surfed which you're you know kind of supposed to do (laughs) but i did spend plenty of time in the ocean so that like the kinds of things they're talking about on atp I can relate to very well. You know, I know how to dive under a wave. I know how to dive over a wave. I know how to swim against the, you know, against the tide if you need to. Um, And it's fun. It is fun listening to that conversation in part because I love John. Um, I love how much he always surprises me with how, with his extracurricular interests that I would have never guessed. Uh, And so the picture. I would have never thought he was as much of a beach guy. Well, that, right, yeah, just a beach right? guy in, in general. Yeah. But then the particular thing that I've now got like a picture in my mind of, just just enter this meditation with me, everybody. You're looking at this beautiful blue sky. The waves are crashing on the sand. You're sitting, you know, cross-legged on a beach, looking out at the horizon, and then a wave is coming in. And what's that? It's John Syracuse. <laughs> Body surfing. <laughs> Body surfing, right. <laughs> and he's like, oh, of course you can catch a wave. Anybody can catch a wave. You just got to try a few times. Right. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, totally I love the picture because I could also picture we've all, you know, we've all seen, um, you know, John doesn't get excited about everything in this world. But when he gets excited, you see that great big smile. And I'm just picturing that great big John Syracuse smile coming in on a wave <laughs> as I'm sitting on the beach. Um, I never would have guessed that he was uh, experienced and adept at body surfing. So that's my my ATP. You know, I I can in, tell you insight. the only time I've ever seen him happy, it was uh, <laughs> the the WWDC where they announced APFS, and then afterwards <laughs> <laughs> I met him. You know, it was like I don't know, fifteen minutes after the the keynote ended, and I was outside, and there he was. And it, he truly looked happy for. He's beaming, huh? 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I here's the thing. I I grew up. My family. We used to always go to the Jersey Shore. Uh, you know, my parents are not really. Uh, you know, they're not world travelers. They they. My dad likes to, to go places he can drive. Uh, so we were always Jersey Shore people. I liked it, but my thing was never the daytime at the beach. I was never a fan. Uh, you know, you get a little chafing. Uh, Jersey Shore <laughs> sand is is a bit coarse. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was always a fan of the the boardwalk at night. You know, I like it at night when the lights are on. You know, you know, I like a casino. You know, I like to right. gamble. I'm a, I'm a late night person. I was always a late night kid. I like I like the action late at night. I like the lights. I like the dark. I like the seediness. Uh, and then you know, now that I've uh, traveled a bit. And I've been to the Caribbean a few times. It's mm-hmm. like that's that's the fucking beach. I mean, holy <laughs> shit, man! The sand. I mean, even just the sand is better. The sand is better. Mm-hmm. The ocean is clear. You can actually see your feet at the bottom of the ocean. The waves, instead of knocking you over, are just gentle. They're just you know, little up, little down, little up, little down. The the Atlantic Ocean in like New Jersey. Long Island, New York, that type of area, it's it's brutal. It and and, and it's ugly. It's it's it, you know it's it's dark brown water. You can't see six inches into it. It's it's kind of filthy. If you turn your back on a wave, it'll knock you over. You know what I mean? Like you can't turn your back on a wave. You know it's it's yeah. So I you know I'm kind of anti Atlantic Ocean to be honest. I, you know, I like. <laughs> I like being in the ocean. I like a beach, but I'll tell you what, I don't like the the eastern seaboard. The eastern seaboard is shit in my opinion. And I and I'm a type of person who's biased in terms of the east coast. I think the east coast is the real time zone. I think, you know, I have all sorts of biases in favor of the eastern standard time zone. Uh but I'll tell you what, in terms of going to the beach, it's the fucking worst. I think you can just expand that all your biases against the eastern the Atlantic eastern you know coast of the US. I think you can just expand that to include the western coast because it's just you know you can't see through it. It's no. cold. It's colder than the Atlantic. Wow, and it's terrible. it's it is more forceful and more violent. So right, it's uh, terrible. It, if it's in a way, I mean you really can't turn your back on the Pacific. Right. Um I enjoy that. I still I enjoy the big waves. I enjoy you know I, I related I think most to actually John's advice to Marco because you know if folks who haven't heard it, you should go listen to it. But basically Marco's like I don't know what I want. I don't I don't know what to do in the water. It doesn't doesn't seem fun to just like frolic around in the water. And John's saying basically, well you know it's like a video game of like you versus the waves. And I relate to that because that was one of my fun pastimes. You, you, you never know what the next wave is going to be. And especially on the, in the Pacific, um, Santa Cruz, where I grew up, you can get some big waves and yeah. they will really knock you out. And, uh, you know, one of, one of the bits of advice also John had for Marco was to learn to hold his breath. Right. <laughs> and, uh, I, I think it's hard to have a sense of time when you're trapped underwater from a wave, but, I think I've probably been trapped underwater for at least 30 seconds, which is terrifying right. when you don't know how long you're going to be underwater. Right. Um, but that's, you know, it's kind of it's kind of one of these things. The ocean is one of these things, I think, at its best, can kind of wake you up to the fact that the world is so big and so powerful and so much bigger 
than any one of us. I think that's probably kind of the high that surfers get is kind of being part of this system that's bigger than them. Um, But I don't know. It's interesting. I I definitely like the ocean, but these days um, my family and I, we usually go to Cape Cod. The ocean's ruined in Cape Cod because of all the, of all the uh, great white sharks. So um, that sounds exciting though. It's exciting. Yeah, (laughs) it is exciting for sure. (laughs) I shouldn't say it's ruined, but I mean it's getting more and more. It's like seems like every year there's like a there's like a more. I would go in that water. I would go in. I cannot even imagine convincing either my son Jonas or my wife Amy to go in the water yeah. if there was even a one percent chance of a great white shark. I can't right. even imagine getting them to go in up to their ankles. It's getting it's getting to the point where like the part of Cape Cod we go to, they might as well film a jaws sequel there because it's like <laughs> it's like it's ripe it's ready for blood on the beach you know it's it's kind of i mean it's i don't want to trivialize it too but it is kind of fun and exciting obviously it's not fun and exciting if anything happens but um it's it's scary and it's it, i remember the first time i came out to because growing up on the west coast i didn't get out to the east coast at all until i was an adult actually the first time on the east coast was an iconic moment in history, Macworld 1996. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, Apple, it was my first paid, um, was it 96 or 97? Uh, it's the one with, with well, um, where Bill Gates made the announcement. That's 97. That's 97. 97. Yeah, that makes more sense because I was hired in 96. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, the next Macworld in Boston, Apple sent me out. And um, that was also my first experience going to an Atlantic beach. And because this was great, this was back when I don't know Apple like they they just like they gave me a rental car. They you know they said take a few extra days, whatever. And um, I went down to Cape Cod for the first time, and I was just like, this is like this is like a playground compared to the Pacific. But at that time, there weren't like well, a huge risk of sharks every day. Well, the thing about the Atlantic is, and I I, I have to admit I've never been in the Pacific Ocean. I've I've obviously been to California many times, but I've never gone to the beach. But I mean, I've seen it. But the thing about the Atlantic Ocean, especially on 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 the New Jersey, uh, New York, and I, you know, I've been to South Carolina, and it's exactly the same. So South Carolina, to me, I don't know. I'm just going to draw a line and say all the way from South Carolina to New York, it's all the same. Mm-hmm. It's dark water. It's dirty, and the waves break really close to the shore. So you can't surf. There is, I know that there are people who surf in New Jersey. Don't, don't, don't <laughs> at me. I get it, but you have to hunt for it because, for the most part, uh, most beaches, the waves all break like twenty feet from the shore. It's it it, it it's terrible. Yeah, I have been confused, wondering where people surf because I see I go to Cape Cod and there's like surf shops. And they have surfboards, and I wonder where the heck to use. Well, this. I when I was a, when I was in high school, my best friend, his mom always got a uh, rented a house for a week or two at, on Long Beach Island in New Jersey. And Long Beach Island uh, is is really nice. It it's it's if if I were ever going to spend uh, more than a week at the shore, that's probably where I would go. You know, it's really nice. It's a very narrow town. 
So like mm-hmm. the furthest you can get from the beach is like two blocks from the beach. You know, it's and, and it's a very short beach. So once you're on the beach, you're almost in the water. Very nice. Uh, and and you could surf there, and I could see guys surfing there. But even so, it 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 really seemed constrained. You know, like you were you were the the guys who were surfing were clearly it it was hard to surf. You know what I mean? Because the waves broke too close to the shore. They're they're you could yeah. do it, but it 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 didn't look anything like when you watch real surfers. You know, pro pro surfers on ESPN and they're you know in Hawaii or or you know, somewhere cool in California mm-hmm. and they're way off the coast and they can like ride this wave, you know, for a minute or something like that. No way. You get like yeah. two seconds on a fucking wave in New Jersey. It's right. The, the serious waves in California and Hawaii, they have people like, and they have those contests, competitions, they have jet skis to like shuttle the surfers yeah. out. So it's like, that's how far out they have to get to actually catch those waves. Do you ever think about the stupid stuff you did as a kid? Did you? I mean, I did a lot of stupid stuff that if I found out my kid was doing, I, I would want to strangle him. Mm. Uh, did, did, did you do dumb stuff like that? I did all the dumb stuff, and it's, right. it's just too sad that my I, I'm never going to let my kids get away with it. <laughs> right. So when I was in high school, I, my, my best friend, is like I said, his mom would rent a house for two weeks in Long Beach Island, and then like for a week, uh, for a couple of years, he had invited me out, and then by like my senior year, we had a couple of friends who would come out uh, and spend a week there, and it was really cool, and it was you know a lot of fun. Uh, just you know, be on your own in a beach town. His mom was very cool, very nice. Uh, but the one year, I think it was the year before my senior year of high school, a hurricane came through, and and it didn't really hit the Jersey Shore very hard uh, you know somebody can look you know google this up uh summer of 91 it would have been there was a hurricane and it, it, it must have hit one of the carolinas real hard but then it came up the eastern seaboard and it was just like a tropical storm by the time it hit new jersey but the other thing we were obsessed with at the time was playing poker we played poker uh and we played all night long and we watched the storm just blow and it was just random shit. Just you'd look out. We were playing on the porch and it was like an, an, an enclosed porch. Uh, and it, it was just the most amazing thing because you would see things that you wouldn't think the wind could blow just blowing down the street. You know, like a big heavy metal wrought iron bench right. just blowing down the street. We stayed up all night playing poker. Uh crazy storm got a couple hours of sleep woke up and we went down to the beach and it the beach it wasn't raining but it was overcast it was the day after the storm had come through but because it was overcast like the uh the lifeguards were not on duty and nobody was on the beach there was nobody on the beach it was just like me and like three friends and it, you know it was the middle of summer it wasn't cold but the water was a little cold but we decided to go in and and the day after this storm, I mean, the waves were like epic. <laughs> I mean, they were like, I mean, they were just, I, I've never, ever in my life seen waves like this. Maybe in the Pacific, you see waves like this all the time. But they were just humongous. But my friend Todd just, like, went way out in the ocean. <laughs> I mean, like, so far out. It was crazy. 
And, oh boy. And these waves were like 20 to 30 foot swells. And, and you would see him at the top of one and, you know, just see his head sticking out. And then he would go down <laughs> and then just disappear. And we're yelling. And, and even us as idiot 17 year old boys who thought we were going to live forever, we're, we were, even we were yelling at him like, hey, dude, you might want to <laughs> come in. There's literally no lifeguards on duty, no lifeguards, nobody else. <laughs> Of course, it's, you know, 1991, it's all pre-cell phone. So if he had, like, washed out to sea, we, I mean, he'd be dead. <laughs> and we were just vaguely concerned. We were just like... <laughs> and meanwhile, <laughs> we were all probably way too far out, right? Like, because the waves, it was just so much fun going up and down. If I found out my kid went in the ocean the day after a hurricane or a tropical storm came by without lifeguards, I would strangle him. Oh, my God. But at the time, I thought that was normal. I was like, "Well, at least I'm not Todd. I'm not the one. <laughs> I'm not the one who's forty yards out." <laughs> I keep telling my kids about my childhood experiences, and I have to sort of say, "Like, well, I'm not going to let you do this." But <laughs> this is, and it's like similar similar to that. We were just like I said, I was up in Vermont, and uh, you know, sitting in this river, and it was a very t- calm, tepid river. On, um, but I told my my kids about how I used to ride the inner tubes down the Sacramento river in California. And this is a river that has some, like some, uh, some rapids. Um, and the key though, is I used to ride this inner tube down the river in this, the town I lived in as a seven year old with my seven year old friend and no adults. <laughs> we just go get these inner tubes and we'd hop, we, we'd take like a hike, like a mile up the river and then hop in the river. And, <laughs> I just can't fathom it. My my son, my seven year old doesn't even walk, doesn't even cross the street without me. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> so I don't know. It's um, I kind of fear that I'm gonna make these kids that don't have like the independence and you know adventure spirit that in some ways I have, but I don't want to be like one of those people who's like confirmation bias just because right. i survived every other kid is gonna survive the same freedom like i right. think it, it's one of those things where like, because i did end up surviving and things turned out okay it kind of makes a great story right. and it makes me have some attributes that i i, I value but that doesn't mean i should take the same idea. chance with my kids well here's my favorite my favorite was uh my parents house is right across the street from an, uh, the elementary school that I went to, literally right across the street. And it it's on a hill. So you could go down the hill and, and you know, I used to ride a skateboard. You could go down the hill on a skateboard right in front of the school. And then you'd, you'd make a right into the parking lot of the school. And then you, you know, you could smooth out the downhill thing you did. And they also had a pavilion. Now the pavilion is gone now, you know, but that the, you know, they, I, I think they like expanded the school to to cover it. But next to this covered pavilion, there was just a little hump, maybe like six, six inches, like where the they, they just they didn't know what to do with the end of the macadam. So they just curled it up. But if you if you hit it on your bike, it was a nice little jump. You could you know, you could easily get three, four feet up in the air. We mm. used to call it the hump jump. Mm hmm. And the one time I was there, and I had no friends with me. I was all by myself, and I hit the hump jump. And I really hit it fast, and I was going for distance. Well, there happened to be a tree <laughs> about 15 <laughs> feet away from it. And oh, my. I hit the tree like with my bike, 
it so hard that it turned the handlebars of my bike completely perpendicular so that the handlebars were like aligned with the 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 tire you know what i mean right like, like sideways and i <laughs> i hit my head of course and, and no knocked, no helmet of course no because of course. we didn't and do knock, helmets back well then. we didn't do helmets and i knocked myself out <laughs> oh my god so you know it was about five thirty in the afternoon and the next <laughs> next thing i know the there was a, a cleaning lady from the school and she was latino she didn't speak i don't think she spoke english as her first language and 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 she was you know shaking me and she said she saw me hit it <laughs> she saw me hit the tree and she wanted to know if i was okay <laughs> and i had like a giant goose egg on the right side of my forehead i mean just like a big goose egg but all i could think was that my parents would be mad at me if they found out <laughs> that yeah. i was making this jump and i said i'm okay and she's like <laughs> no no let me where do you live you know let me take you home and i'm like i'm okay i'm okay and then i looked at my bike and the the steering wheel was sideways and i was like oh my god my parents are gonna kill me they're gonna know it and i like put it put the tire between my knees and and like i i'd screwed up my bike enough that like it was easy easy to straighten the handlebars you know what i mean yep and i was like i'm okay and i was definitely not okay i had been knocked out (laughs) I had been out for like five minutes. I had a giant goose egg on my head, and this very, very kind, sweet cleaning lady was like trying to make sure I was okay. And I'm like walking away with this bike with crooked handlebars, <laughs> thinking like I got to get home and <laughs> figure out a story. If I found out my kid did that, I would be furious. Yeah. Well, so did you get away with it? <laughs> yeah, I totally got away with you it. My parents it. have no idea. And they don't listen to my podcast, but they still want So me. we're not going to tell them. <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> no, never know. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me take a break here and thank our third and final sponsor of the episode. And this is, I, I mean, it's a trifecta. It's a trifecta of great sponsors. I love this company. It's Linode. I used to call it Linode because that's what it looks like. But it's Linode because it's Lin like Linux. Uh, Linux is the operating system that most servers on the internet run. Linode is absolutely great hosting service for your own server. And they've just opened a new data center in Toronto, Canada. That's a big deal because in addition to wanting a server location that's closest to you or maybe closest to your users for legal reasons. Some people, depending on your business, might need for compliance a server that is hosted in a certain country. Well, now they have one in Toronto, Canada. It is absolutely as good as all of their other hosting locations. They have, let me just start this off. I'll just tell you right now. They have a $20 credit for all new customers. And... They only charge at the starting point $5 a month. So you can get four months for free just by waiting until the end of this sponsor read and for me to tell you what to do. You can get four months for free on Linode with an absolutely world-class server. Uh, Anything you want to do online, you can do on Linode. Dedicated CPU. They have distributed applications. uh, Everything they do, native SSD storage They have 40 gigabit network, super fast. Uh, Pick from any of their 10 worldwide data centers where you want yours hosted. And they're opening another one in Mumbai, India. 
by the end of 2019, in case you need to be over there. Pay what you use with hourly billing across all of their plans and add-on services. Deploy and maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Their tools make it easy to provision, secure, and monitor, and backup, which is super important, your personal cloud, your service, your server. Uh, really great stuff. They have a brand new their version four of their API. It's a RESTful API. So anything you want to do, customize. If you're if you're a super advanced user and you want to like program stuff, you want to you want to customize stuff. You want to have scripts that run. They have a great API for doing almost anything you could possibly want. And like I said, use this promo code TalkShow2019. T A L K S H O W 2019, and you get twenty dollars credit at Linode. L-I-N-O-D-E dot com slash the talk show. Go to linode.com slash the talk show. Remember this promo code, talk show 2019. You save 20 bucks and amazingly, you can get a great account for just five bucks a month. That's four months free. An entire third of the year. My, for God's sake, it'll be freezing cold by the time your, your, your period is up. I cannot thank them enough. They are a great, great hosting service. Uh, so go try them out at linode.com slash the talk show. What do you think about this, this stuff with Facebook getting fined by the FTC? I, I think oh, this is I, five, $5 billion. Yeah, I, I get it because it's like a record-breaking fine. And so yeah. it seems like that's significant. And I really do feel I, I the best I, I can't emphasize enough how good Kara Swisher's New York Times column on this was a couple of weeks ago where she was just like add a zero and then we're talking because mm -hmm. other than that they've just chalked this up as the cost of doing business like and and the fact that when this quote unquote record breaking FTC fine was announced Facebook's stock went up it, it tells you everything you need to know where, where they've manage this and again it is a record breaking so i i get it but i mm -hmm. i i feel like we're in new territory on some of this you know you know what i mean yeah i mean that's kind of the scale problem like we were talking earlier about dropbox's value and twitter's value and facebook's value i don't know how to grapple with these numbers so like facebook's value to remind folks is 577 billion dollars so um in that context, five billion seems kind of small. But if you just gave me a number, five does right. it seem like a good idea to to find Facebook five billion dollars? Well, if I check my mail tomorrow and I yeah. got a five billion dollar fine, <laughs> right. I I would be I, I would break into a sweat. I would I would be a little nervous because well, I like, think, yeah, I got to put this on a finance plan. You know what I mean? Or, <laughs> I'm going to have to pay this off over time. Or anybody who's listening, you can kind of do the rough math. Like, what would you have to do? to be charged a fine that is one one hundredth of your net worth. Right? Like Right. So that's all of a sudden Right. And all of a sudden you peg it at one one hundredth of my net worth and you know, oh I, I could probably pay that. I yeah, could probably write probably. a check tomorrow. And and yeah. right, so so is what Facebook did bad enough that it should be more than one one hundredth of their net worth. Or, you know, I, I guess I just have to admit I don't really know how these things should be tabulated um 
it seems like there should be a punitive aspect and there should be like an aspect of it that sort of sets an example for other companies. Um, and I guess what you're saying, it seems compelling to me that Facebook is able to just sort of shrug this off. So it doesn't seem either that punitive or that um, sort of demonstrative of the seriousness that other companies will face if they try the same things, right? Right. Uh, the other thing, and again, it gets back to this non-consensual technology. Uh, I've been meaning to write about it. I have a blog post that is mostly written, but I was on vacation, so it's not completely written. But my friend Mike Davidson, uh, at the beginning of July, wrote a post about Superhuman, which is a invitation only for the at least for the moment, $30 a month front end to Gmail. So in other words, if you, if you know somebody and they can get you in or you're on their list and they say you're in, okay, now you sign up, you pay $30 a month and you get their interface to Gmail. Uh, so it's an email client. You do it through a web browser. Uh, people seem to love it. I, I cannot for the life of me, imagine doing my email through a web browser, Gmail or otherwise. So, I mean, it's not for me. Um, but the thing that my, my friend Mike Davidson pointed out was that they have a red receipt feature that's on by default, and it uses, like, a single one-by-one pixel GIFs. Yeah. And so your every email you send has a little invisible GIF. And when anybody, whoever you send your email to, maybe I just send an email to my friend Daniel and it just says, Hey Daniel, you want to be on my, you want to be on my podcast uh, this Monday. And then if you use their client, it'll tell you Daniel read the email at, you know, 11 o'clock AM Monday morning and then he read it again at one, and it used to it, it until until Michael Mike pointed this out. It would even do geolocation based on your IP, and would say like, you know, uh, from Boston, Massachusetts, he read it at ten a.m., but then at two in the afternoon, he read it from uh, you know the coast of Maine or wherever you are, mm-hmm. uh, which is creepy AF and after he posted this, like I get how it works. I get how most, if not every modern email client, the message viewer pane is effectively a web browser. And it, you know, whether it's mail.app on Mac or iOS, uh, certainly if you're reading your email in a web browser, like, you know, if you're, just go to gmail.com and, and whatever your favorite browser is. Clearly, the message renderer is part of a web browser. And it loads the message and it loads this invisible pixel and then they use reverse geo-tracking on the IP. But I asked, you know, I asked my wife, I asked a couple other people who are totally non-technical, do you, do you realize that this would be possible that every time you look at a specific message, the person who sent it would be able to tell, hey, this, you know, Amy read this message at 11 a.m., she read it at 1, and then she read it the next day again at 2 p.m. 
And here's where she was. And they were like, every single person I asked was like, no, that's not possible, is it? And I was like, yeah, actually, that, that is possible. And he he wrote this up, and then the CEO of Superhuman had a fairly, you know, it wasn't super defensive, you know. It, it was a fairly decent response, except for the fact that it didn't acknowledge that the fundamental idea, to me, is wrong. Mm. Yeah, this is interesting because I have to admit, as a business owner, I have used some of these services like I've used in particular Campaign Monitor, you know, one of these email services where, you know, one of the responses I see Mike Davidson's uh, post, he said he, he addresses like, well, one of the one of the excuses is everybody does this. Yeah. Tracking pixels in emails are a thing. And Ma- MailChimp is a longtime sponsor during Fireball in this podcast. MailChimp, I think, has the same feature. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of these things where it forces me to really think carefully about my own ethical stance on this because, frankly, so I, I, this is one of these situations where I'm like I'm getting back to what we said earlier about maybe you and I being examples of people who are a little bit more tuned into how to protect ourselves slash maybe a little more paranoid sometimes. Um, I have that feature on in Mail on my Mac that doesn't load remote content by default. Right. So I think anybody who emailed me from Superhuman would not be tracking me um, right. unless I explicitly click that load remote content button. Um, and then, you know, back to the confessional part, I have sent how many, out... How many people even know that option exists? Right, not very many. Uh, and I have sent emails. I'm not very good at sending emails from a company point of view, but the times <laughs> I have sent them, like a couple times over the last 15 years... Um, I haven't gone out of my way to disable that feature or anything. I haven't said like, hey, campaign monitor, cool it on the tracking. And then to be honest, when I see stuff like, well, you know, whatever, 10% of the people have opened this email since you sent it five minutes ago, let's say. Um, I find that interesting. So this right. is a this is one of these things, again, it's like the theme, again, legitimate, bona fide user experience improvement but at what cost, right? Right, and and I get it. And I've talked to a you know we you know you and I have a bunch of friends who run independent software companies, and and you know it, it's a good idea to have a mailing list. And I know you know it, Ben Thompson, you know who runs a, a, a paid subscription uh, mailing list, you know for his main business, Stratechery. You know you you give him X dollars per year, and then four days a week you get a custom email just for subscribers to you and i don't know if he uses campaign monitor or mailchimp i forget what he uses but it doesn't even matter but i know that he's he's got a tracking pixel or tracking image in there and he can see you know what percentage you know 78 percent of subscribers open this in the last 24 hours well that's interesting to know because it's in the aggregate and it's not wrong but when i send a message to my hypothetical yeah. right, ex-girlfriend or girlfriend and we're estranged and then I can see when and where, how many times she opened it. That's, yeah. it's, it's wrong on a personal. I, I, I don't know that it's wrong in the aggregate for a mailing list, but I know that it's wrong on a personal level. And even if they've disabled the reverse geo tracking, which they apparently have in response to Mike Davidson's 
thing. It's still wrong to let us to let somebody know that they've read it. Like the real red receipts, when you use the official email protocol, red receipt is opt in. Right. It's mm-hmm. like same thing with iMessage. Like real, like, and, and that's the thing that I, my my in draft post on this is emphasizing is how how corrupt we've let email get over the last two decades because it clearly was never meant for this, right? Like email was never, ever, ever meant for something where when you read a message, the person who sent it to you could tell when you did it without your uh, compliance in any way. That is absolutely not within the spec. It's not within the design, but it is technically possible now that we've allowed the message body of emails to be web browsers effectively. Uh, it, it's it's a total inadvertent thing. And that to me is sort of the bottom line of this story is like, I kind of get, I, I got, I'm glad that superhuman, you know, acknowledged Mike's post and they've taken some actions and they disabled the geo tracking. But my bigger takeaway is that the, every single major email client has sort of dropped the ball on even allowing this, it shouldn't even be possible. And I'm not quite sure. And I've been thinking about it for weeks now, because it's a couple of weeks old. I'm convinced, though, that there's a way that every email client could could make this not possible. You know, like, and I'm not quite sure what it would be like, because the traditional way of sending an email, like in the old days was that email was just text. It was just it was just like, you know, like iMessage, you you just send a string of characters and that's the message and that's it. So there is no metadata. But even with inline attachments, and yet you could say, you know, if I sent you a picture, you know, an email with two photos from my vacation and those photos are in the email, they're on your, you get the whole email. It's on your device, whether it's your Mac or your phone or whatever. The whole email is there, including the attachments, so that when you view it, nothing on my side gets pinged. Uh, even if I send you an email, and I, I, you know, the the barn doors are already open. We've lost the war on on rich text email with server side images and stuff like that. We're not going to be able to undo that. You can't make an email client today that doesn't load that that refuses to load remote images. But I feel like there should be there, there's got to be a way that clients can load those remote images in, in an anonymous way. Yeah. Well, real quick, John, before you get a bunch of emails, I think I want to just point out that um, in case it's not obvious, the, um, the deal with those email companies like MailChimp and Campaign Monitor, it's not strictly aggregate. They right. do let you go in and say, yeah, yeah. So, um the, but the, I think that's what most people do, though. I, I, I do yeah. think, like, don't, wouldn't you say that, like, as you, as the red sweater software guy, wouldn't you say your interest is mostly in the aggregate? My Again. In, yes, but that's just, like, that's, that just happens to be my right. personal right. attitude. I don't, I don't give everybody that much credit. Um, right. And, in fact, I think that the mailing services, it's, it's part of their business proposition that you can identify on a, on a subscriber by subscriber basis and you go into the consoles of these services and they show you on a map, like where the person was when they opened the email. I mean, let's yeah. just not, it's just, it's, we can't really dance around it. It's creepy. 
Right. Um, and so that's a that's a, I think one of the interesting things about this um, this um, mail app doing it is that it makes all of these individuals who use the app agents of this kind of creepiness. Yeah. Whereas what we're used to is that companies are creepy sometimes. Right. Right. And then suddenly now this app has made individuals creepy. And I think that's a good example. Like you say, you know, should you be able to like email your ex-girlfriend and then see when they open the the email? Um, so anyway, I just want to get that out of the way. Make sure people yeah. know, we know that this right. is not strictly aggregate. Um, right. And no, I think I, I, that's a good point. I think you're right, though, that um, male clients could be doing something about this. Um, let's give Apple a tiny bit of credit. The fact that there is this feature that you can turn off loading the remote content is good. But getting back to like all these things that have been changing over the years with Safari, for example, we talked about not being able to click on a bookmarklet anymore without a prompt coming up. Right. Um, where is all the attention? Like what if they put as much attention into email security as they did into Safari security? And it's- That is exactly what I think they should do. I, I really do. I, and I think the Safari team literally leads the industry in protecting browser users' personal privacy. But I really think that the Mail.app team needs either the same dose of privacy-first you know, vitamins or mm-hmm. they, you know, should borrow people from the Safari team because literally the way that email privacy is being violated is through uh, web views. Right. I, well, I re- yeah. I, and I really hope that it's sort of an eye opener. That's the gist of the post that I, 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 you know, mostly done writing, but I really, I, I think it's overdue and I, and, and I, I, I don't blame them for overlooking it because I feel like they're mostly comprised of people like me who just, you just don't think of that. You don't think of how are people violating your privacy through email, right? You, you, you just, right. you know, you're thinking, how do I reliably and efficiently uh, download and sync these IMAP mailboxes between devices? You know, you're not really thinking about that because you're not a shitbird who's trying mm-hmm. to violate people's privacy. But the truth is uh, people are using email to violate privacy. And so it to me, that's the bottom line is it doesn't even matter what superhuman does or says they're going to do. The bottom line is that the major email client makers should make it impossible for that to happen. And they yeah. should just cut it off. Just make it so that nobody can tell when or if you've ever opened an email. I, I, it's it's absolutely and I'm telling you when I talk to people in my family my wife and a couple of other people and ask them if they thought it was possible that somebody when they sent you an email could tell when you when or if you read it you know yeah they're they're like no of course not and I'm like yeah actually depending on how they sent it yeah they could yeah. totally do it with an invisible tracking pixel and they're appalled they are absolutely shocked and the other really big tell to me is that every major messaging platform in the last 20 years after email nobody has ever made that possible like that's right. not possible in iMessage it's not possible in WhatsApp, it's not possible in these other things. You know, like iMessage has read receipts, but it is a total opt. It's off by default, and you have to turn it on and 
therefore you're allowing people to say, okay, they can tell that you read it, but it doesn't say when, it doesn't say where, it just says read. And that's and it's opt-in. Yeah. The fact that with the email that they've built this system where you have no opt-in and it, it, it reveals all this information about you, it's absolutely appalling. And any kind of defense of it is, to me, dishonest because everybody knows that is not how email was designed. The, the clear design of the system from the early 90s or late 80s, whenever you know email as we know it was invented, clearly did not involve involuntary red receipts. No. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting example because you can almost imagine Apple trying to wait out this being an issue. Like if you imagined at one point 10 years ago that iMessage is going to you know prevail or something, or you, and people aren't going to be using email anymore, then you might just say, well, that's just a legacy technology. But it's clearly not, it doesn't show any sign of just disappearing. Um, and it does seem like it would be such a great like WWDC keynote message to be like, you know, also we made mail finally respect your privacy. Like, yeah. And, and an example that came to mind, um, it's kind of along the lines of this whole system they have in place where you can do things like send, you know, you can send like large files to people and Apple basically hosts it temporarily. Yeah. Um, so imagine if Apple had a system where, um, they could like securely send like a hash of a URL to Apple servers or something. And then, I don't know, something, 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 and they can decide, does this look like a unique URL or not? Right. Like imagine if there's a feature in mail where you say, like I, right now I have this load remote content thing. I have to click for every mail uh, message. But if I could just say mail, it's okay for you to load any resource that doesn't look like it has a tracking ID in it for me. And then, furthermore, it could like it could like um, it could load that resource from Apple's servers, you know, could like kind of sort of like trampoline yep. it through Apple, and so then I could get that that satisfy the promise of email as a conveyance of text and images and layout information, but the distributor of that information doesn't have any idea who asked for it. I I've been thinking about this a lot all month long ever since mike started writing about it about because my first thought mike wrote to me and and he's a longtime friend and he sent me an early draft of his first post and uh he was like i'm not even sure i'm going to publish this and i read it and i sent him a couple of typos you know like just copy editing things but i was like overall i was like you've got to publish this because this is dynamite this is going to blow up and i i i don't want to you know I don't want to say I was right, but I was right. It blew up, and <laughs> yeah. it was huge. Uh, uh, but the second thought, the first thought I had was, you know what? When you put it in these terms, like I always, I knew this was possible. But when you put it in these terms, and you show me like screenshots of what Superhuman shows people about, like where and when people see these emails, I was like, this is explosive. People are gonna, people mm -hmm. are gonna be irate. But the second thought I had was email clients should defend against this. It's it this that we could beat this. I know that there's a way to do it. But the the thing I've been thinking about all month is I'm not a hundred percent sure whether it should be at the email client end or at the email provider end. In other words, if Apple was going to defend against this, should it be in Mail.app or should it be on iCloud? 
you know, so mm-hmm. that your your Mac.com account does what you're saying. Like, read the email, load all of the remote resources, and store them on iCloud.com or Mac.com, whatever the, you know, whatever your domain is for your email, and then let you download them once from there. But then you're not hitting them directly, so they never really know the whether you read it or not. And then if you read the email again, it's all locally cached. Right. I, I'm not, you know, on the one hand, I think it would be easier to do it. I definitely think it would be easier to do it from the server side and have the the your your IMAP provider do it on their side. But on the other hand, if they don't do it at the client side, you're not defended if you're not using their their email service, right? And so, in other words, if DaringFireball.net isn't hosted by somebody who supports defending against this, shouldn't the client still help me out? And you know, yeah. and that's the way that that to me is the way that Safari team has has tackled stuff to their credit is that the Safari team is like we don't care what websites do, what they comply with, if they comply with GDPR or best practices or whatever. We're going to if you use Safari as your web browser, we are going to protect your privacy. And I kind of feel like that's what the mail.app team should do. I think um this is a great example of Apple having its sort of benevolent user focused protection stuff that's part of their DNA come up against now this whole, like we keep seeing it again and again, like what's the next service Apple's going to provide. And if you think about it through that right. sort of lens, it's a natural if Apple said, okay, now we have mail plus or whatever. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, totally so, so, so it's a, it's a little bit of a situation where if Apple wasn't on this run of trying to add new services all the time with a with a bone, you know, and it, and it it plays into it plays well into the idea that like your mail hosting would maybe eat into your iCloud quota and all that stuff. Um, it definitely seems like there are some challenges to any kind of like you know t- even temporary hosting of arbitrary users' email uh, images or whatever. So I don't know. I think you're right that, you know, earlier when you were saying they should they should get like the get the same kind of attitude as the WebKit team or Safari team. It almost just seems like literally the Safari team should take over the mail view component. Yeah. For for the web for the web view version of of mail. Right. And again, the argument over whether email should be a web view or not that we've lost that. I mean, there's no use arguing over that anymore. You can't ship a modern email client that only renders email as plain text. Whether I I think that's the way it should have been. I think it should have stayed that way, but that argument is decades old lost. Right. And so let's be practical and admit that, you know, people get email, they want it to look the way the email is supposed to look, which is a rich graphical view. But I think there's a numerous ways that it could be done anonymously. Uh, and, and I really think it's important. I, I, I think that that's the thing that this superhuman thing has exposed to me. It's not nothing to do with superhuman in particular, but the fact that our modern view of email as a web view really needs to be protected and tightened up. And we're, we're sort of doing it open kimono style right now. And just think about that a little bit more, actually, 
maybe, you know, if we step back, this problem applies to people who use Gmail, whatever, on the web, you know, the web browser stuff. Absolutely. So right. if you look at it from that perspective, maybe it's not that, you know, mail needs to hand over the mail view to the WebKit team, but maybe it's that Safari, the WebKit team need to solve this across the board, right? Yeah. So, you know, maybe there's yeah. some kind of proxying service that protects you regardless of where you, you load your web content. Um, that that's the kind of thing I could I I, I could see Apple doing. Um, and I don't know how practical it is, but wouldn't it be great if they could solve this not just in Mail.app but in all 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 mail apps right. and on the on the web just by some kind right. of clever web based thing. Well, and it's yeah, it's the sort of thing that I could definitely see Apple doing. I can definitely see that. Uh, I know that there are people at Apple who would love to tackle the problem. That's the thing is, isn't that the best type of programming problem is one that you want to tackle? You know, you're like, oh, that, uh, that mountain of shit, I would love <laughs> to get rid of that. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? I would love when, I mean, you know, that there are people at Apple who would love to fix this. And so I really hope that it's opened their eyes to it. Like, Hey, you know what? We've kind of had our eyes close to this just because we never really thought about it. But this is the sort of thing we could fix. And, yeah. and uh, I, I can't even list. I mean, the, 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 it's an arm's length number of things that the WebKit slash Safari team has fixed over the last five years since they've really, really gone, you know, nose to the grindstone on these privacy issues. And they're, they're just amazing problems. And, and they fix them one after another after another, and they just keep coming. And, mm -hmm. and I really think, though, that it, this is the first one that really breaks out of the web browser itself, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a good example of a problem, a set of problems that are technical challenges, and they are, so they have the gratification of solving a technical challenge, but also the gratification of providing, like, a public good. And that's and doing, think, yeah, yeah, doing the right thing. Yeah. Right. Uh, Daniel, I really appreciate your time. I, I, I hope you enjoy the rest of the summer. Everybody can hear the dulcet tones of your wonderful voice on your regular podcast with uh, our mutual friend, Manton Reese, on Core Intuition, which you could probably, right? That's the yep, name. that's it. Core Intuition. Oh, my God. I got it right. You got and it right. You could just search for that. In whatever your favorite podcast app is, it'll be the number one hit. Manton is a fine individual. Yes, uh, he is. Uh, how often do you guys do you guys publish uh, episodes of Core Intuition? We're pretty regular, pretty much every week. Uh, not every week? not so we're not so regular on the exact day of the week, but pretty much fifty two. We probably do fifty episodes a year. Yeah, so do I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My give or give or take uh, give or take give or take twenty episodes. Uh, also, you've—I mean, I, I don't even know where to get started. I don't know. I mean, you got bit splitting, yeah, which is a great blog that you post with technical stuff. You've got uh, what's what's your uh, Twitter? Your Twitter is uh, Dan Daniel Punk uh, Ass. Three things that Daniel go great Punk together. Ass. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's a very aptly named yeah. Twitter account. Uh, but that that'll get people started if they want more. They want to they want to learn more. That's a great place to find out. Basically, as as John mentioned, um, Red Sweater Software is my is my main jam. Uh, Mars Edit is the app I have been mostly working on over the past ten years, and then that's that's the blog editor. You've yeah. also got Black Ink. Yep, 
which is your uh, crossword app, which is a lot of fun. I, I, I've gotten more into crosswords as I've gotten older. I have to say. That's good. Keeps you, keeps your brain bored. young. It does a little bit. And, and you know what? I feel like the older you are, the better you are at getting some obscure references you know yep. like when i was young i always found crosswords very frustrating because they they they'd give me references and i was like how am i supposed to know that that's from the 70s you know yeah well i'll tell you what i think we have a little cheat which is that it, particularly if you're doing the new york times crossword it helps that the new york times crossword editor is also old <laughs> will short <laughs> yeah will shorts one of these days they're going to replace will shorts and it's going to be with, like oh. with somebody young and we're all going to be right. screwed we're going to be like mariah who <laughs> what <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah i think that's absolutely i think that's the key to my increased uh, <laughs> uh enjoyment of crosswords in recent years right. is that now i'm like i'm like prime demographic for all of the obscure clues but anyway thank you daniel i i really appreciate it and uh have a good uh, rest of your summer thanks you too try to keep cool down there I, it's kind of cooling off now finally here it's only 80 degrees but uh yeah hopefully it'll continue that trend thanks so much john for having me on the show i hope uh you build a nice sandwich for me 